As we begin our time this morning, I'll just ask that we bow our heads once again and ask God to open our eyes to His Word. Father, we once again need You. We know we need You every day. We need You especially, Lord. Those words seem rather contradictory, but we need You when we open Your Word to open our eyes and understanding to what You say, to what You mean by what You say that we might understand what is required of us as your children, that those who do not know you as God, as Savior, would understand their need, understand what is required of them and what they face without Christ. Help each one of us apply these things, Lord, to our life by the energy and empowerment of your spirit as you work in our hearts to accomplish all that you have set forth for us as your children. And so we pray that you would accomplish that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to our study of the book of Romans. We are returning this morning to where we left off last Lord's Day. We're at the beginning of chapter 6, and we didn't make it too far into this passage as we started last time, and we are taking it slow, we are taking it slow purposefully because there is so much richness here in the words of the Apostle Paul, and we are taking it slowly so that we can grasp what is being said to us in order that the eternal security that we have as believers is never doubted. It's sad when true believers doubt their eternal security. It is sad, it is a tragedy, in fact, of the evangelical church at large when you hear some teacher or some preacher or someone on the radio say that you're not secure or to at least give some kind of intimation that You need to wonder as to whether you're a believer when you believe upon Jesus Christ. And so, in the words of the Apostle Paul, as he is writing to those in Rome, he wants them to understand that their eternal security is absolutely that. It is secure. And we remember that in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul explained the rich truth and the overflowing blessing of understanding justification by faith. The reason that there is any kind of doubt when it comes to eternal security within the evangelical church at large is because there is a misunderstanding of justification. There is a misunderstanding of what God has accomplished by means of Jesus Christ in the life of those who believe in Jesus Christ by faith which in reality is a doubting of who God is and a doubting of the power of God to change a life and a doubting of the power of God to secure a life and a doubting, really, of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on behalf of sinners. So there's a whole host of things that go haywire in your own understanding when you don't understand justification rightly. It is a very comforting doctrine. And it is a doctrine that solidifies, or at least it ought to, in the heart of a believer, eternal security when 
it is grasped in your understanding that the realities of faith in Jesus Christ alone, whereby God declares you righteous even though you are a sinner, that you are actually and presently innocent in His eyes forever. That ought to be a great comfort. That ought to bring you real joy. That ought to really settle the anxiousness of a heart in the moments in which God allows in your life. To know and to understand that the condition of innocence before God can never be changed because of an actual unity that the believer has with Jesus Christ is a great joy to realize. However, or maybe it's better to say also, as we began to learn last time, there is a danger to our Christian living if we do not understand justification by faith. We know what the gospel teaches. We've heard it over and over and over again in this local assembly. Paul summarizes it for us, really, in a sense, at the end of chapter 5 with these words, beginning in verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In a sense, that is the gospel in a nutshell. Sin reigned, and by faith in Jesus Christ, grace reigns. The idea that the guilt of every sin that I have or will ever commit has been in Christ completely and permanently dealt with through that union with Christ can have an adverse effect upon my life if I do not understand the realities of that unity with Christ and what it means. And the Apostle Paul anticipates this. He anticipates that struggle because he understands experiential living this side of heaven. And he anticipates the natural question that comes to the minds of those who are thinking about salvation from a human perspective. It's expressed for us in chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? And so, as we've learned, the argument goes like this, that if where there is sin, grace is superabounding, if where Sin continues, grace seems to just cover that all. Doesn't it make sense that the more I sin, this side of heaven, in the human perspective, in the human world, the more I sin, doesn't it make sense the more then I will experientially know the grace of God? In other words, if grace is superabounding to everything, doesn't it make sense that if I sin, I'll get to understand and know that grace even in a better way? 
So the idea is to think that the more I sin, the happier I will be in life. Why? Because of grace. Even as someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, if if I just sin and I go on sinning because grace superabounds, I'll just be happier in life. Because that's what grace supposedly does. In other words, innocence before God equals freedom to sin. Declared innocence before God just kind of opens the door to just go sin any way I want. And so the danger is that if we do not rightly understand justification by faith, in other words, if we don't understand the actual reality of an actual and present union with Christ, then we can have a tendency to abuse grace on the one hand and then also as we learned last time, or at least it was mentioned last time, even become antinomian or anti-law. If antinomianism is a difficult concept for us to understand, we could simply just equate that with the belief that God's law, God's commands, the the things of uh, you're to live this way as a Christian that are all over the Scriptures, just think of it as they have no bearing on your life now. In other words, that was for the old days. That was for before Christ. That was before grace. They don't really have a bearing on you now. Go ahead and live any way you want because you're under grace. So antinomianism is equal to saying and living as if the commands of the Scriptures have no bearing upon you. You'll see that kind of idea and definition in all kinds of modern popular writings. And it's because of a wrong understanding of justification. And if we wrongly understand justification, those two dangers for our Christian lives are very probable. And so, as I said last time, Paul in chapter 6 and 7 of Romans begins to address these issues. And the first that he deals with is that idea of what I have labeled as abused grace. Abused grace. In other words, since grace covers it all, then it doesn't matter how I live. And in verses 1 and 2, he states the general problem. He states the question, and then he states the general problem with that question, and we saw that last time. And it could be summarized in this way. If you understand justification rightly, then the question of verse 1 is an absolutely ridiculous question. In other words, if you understand justification as you're supposed to understand justification, then it is a ridiculous philosophy of life to think like the question in verse 1 says something. Shouldn't we just go on continually living in sin so that grace might increase? To Paul, Paul is trying to highlight the reality that that is an absolute ridiculous question for someone who understands justification by faith. Hopefully, when we're done this morning, you'll understand why it's so ridiculous. Because Paul shows the ridiculousness of the question by means of the answer that he gives in verse 2. That is the answer by means of another question that is asked. Some people don't like when questions are answered that way. Someone asks a question and they want the answer. And someone says, well, let me ask another question. Jesus did that all the time, right? Right? Teacher, who's the greatest? Well, what does the law say? 
Jesus did that all the time. Paul's doing that very same kind of form of communication here. Right? What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Remember, we have been, Paul says, justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We have died to sin, he says in verse 2. In other words, something has happened to us. It isn't something we did. It is not something we now continue to do. This is a reality that Paul's talking about simply based upon our unity with Jesus Christ. It happened to us by means of being united with Jesus Christ by faith. And what exactly did we die to when we died to sin? That seems to sound like a Kind of an oxymoronic question. Aren't you answering the very thing you're asking? But that's not the case. What did we die to when we actually died to sin? And remember, we learned last time that we died to the reign of sin. We died to the reign of sin. We died to the rule of sin over us. And we are now under a new reign. We have a new ruler. It's called grace. Think of it like this. At one point in your life, you were living in another country. You were a citizen of that country. That country had rules over you. You were a citizen of that country. Its laws were over you. If you broke the law, its laws came down upon you. It ruled you. And now, you're in a new country. Now you have a new ruler. The old citizenship is gone. You, are, you have been removed from that citizenship. You are now a citizen of a new country, a new rule. That's what it is. We were once under the rule of sin. Now we are under the rule of grace. And so Paul says, how can we? This is the question. How can we, who are in this present new position being under the reign of grace? Or how can we, who now live in this new country, who are in this position of citizenship in this new country, how can we still live in the old country? How can we, who are now under the reign of grace, still live in the kingdom of sin? So this is Paul's emphasis in his question. The only thoughtful response to that question that Paul brings forth is, well, of course. Well, of course, it's ridiculous to think that we should go on living in it. But there's a secondary question that is immediately posed by us as we ended our time last Lord's Day. And it was this, if I have died to the rule of sin, then why do I still sin? If I died to the rule of sin, why do I still sin? In other words, if sin is no longer my ruler, no longer my master, then why do I still sin? And sometimes 
sometimes it seems as if I'm not even able to break away from it. Why is that? Last Lord's Day I said that I would have you come back for the answer, and you've done that. You're here. So let me see if I can help us by what Paul says. But I I do want to warn us at the beginning, you may not like the answer. You may not like the answer. First, I want us to notice what Paul says again. Paul says, how shall we, based on the question of the first part, are we to continue in sin? How shall we, who are in this present and permanent condition, we're now in this kingdom, we're citizens of this new kingdom, how can we, who are in this present permanent condition of being united with Jesus Christ by faith, who died to sin, that, that, that that's we've been removed from the rule of sin, how can we still live in it? You see, we didn't talk about that little phrase there at the end of the first of the second question, but it is linked with the first question. Because Paul says in the first question, are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? And then in the second part, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? How can we still live in it? He doesn't say, notice, how can we still sin? No, he says, how can we still live in it? The idea here is in answer to the continuance reality in question one. How can we continue in it? How can we be there habitually? Habitual means something done or or doing something constantly. And the idea is no change. That's the idea of continuance. There's no change. There's no thought of change in your action. So Paul is asking this, if we are justified, and we are because God declares it, it's not something you do, it's a declaration by God. If we are justified, then how can we, who have been justified and who are now under the rule of grace, maybe I'll put it in my country illustration, how can we, who now are citizens of a new country, under this rule of grace who is the king of that country, go on living in the old country that we're no longer a citizen. See, how can we continue doing constantly without change or thought of change? How can we remain sinning and being ruled by that old king? How can we do that? It would be like me trying to go to a country I'm not a citizen of and claiming citizenship there and living as if I am when I'm not. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous notion. You cannot do it. It is, in fact, in the terms of a human level and in the terms of a Christian level by way of justification, it's impossible. You cannot. So the question that is asked in the first Verse, are we to continue in sin? Paul's saying that's absolutely impossible to do that. 
So this isn't a matter of a sinlessness by way of act. In other words, a perfectionism. That's not what Paul's dealing with here. This is a matter of living continually, habitually in a realm, in a country that you have been delivered from. You see, some teach and actually believe that when we are saved, that we should never sin again. It's called perfectionism in the modern term. Perfectionism, in other words, that you you never sin again after you're saved. They go on teaching that, in fact. I, I don't know how they get that in their mind when they look at themselves in the mirror every morning. But that's not what Paul is trying to teach here. It's not perfectionism that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 6. In other words, Paul isn't saying that because you are now in the realm of grace, now that you live in this new country called grace, where grace is the ruler, that you'll never sin. That this side of glory, you're never going to sin. The potential for sin is still there in the flesh, isn't it? The potential is there even if you're a citizen of one country to go visit that next that other country. Especially even one who you were a citizen of before. That's patently obvious to all of us. So the potential for sin is there in the flesh. We experience sin in our own lives. The question is, why? question is why why do i still sin if i'm dead to its rule and it's impossible for me to remain in habitual sin why do i still sin the answer to that question first truth we need to understand about sin in our in our lives now as christians is this now i've already mentioned it but but hopefully this will help solidify it the answer to the question is because we are united with Christ, because we are under the rule of grace, you have to recognize that it's impossible for you as a true Christian. Impossible. That's the right word for it. It is impossible for you to go on continually, habitually, through your life under the power of sin. Impossible. My contention is that we as Christians, we do sin. But true Christians do not sin habitually. They do not live in the country of sin without any kind of thought of change or condition in their mind of change. Why? Why do I make that contention? Because the moment that you are justified by God, God, in essence, says this. I am going to deliver you completely from the penalty, that is guilt, and the power, that is the rule of sin. The moment I justify you, I have delivered you. I have removed you from the guilt of sin. I have removed you from the power of sin. Sin no longer, its, it's, it's penalty is no longer on you, and the rule is no longer over you. And therefore, I'm going to start at once... In time, delivering you from its kingdom by placing you in the kingdom of my dear son. I'm transferring you out of that kingdom 
destroying your old passport, giving you a new kingdom and a new passport, which is the kingdom whereby grace rules. And at that very moment, in time when you were saved, God says, I am now progressively and continually delivering you from the practice of sin. Until one day I'm going to bring you home and you will be perfect without any blemish or any sin at all. And so here's what we need to remember. Paul is not teaching that while we remain here on this temporal earth, that even though we have died to sin, that that means that we are now sinless by way of potential act of sin. Paul's not saying that. We are innocent by way of the guilt of sin, even though we still act sinfully. What Paul is saying is that we are no longer under the rule of the kingdom of sin. How shall we, who are no longer under the rule of the kingdom of sin, continue in that kind of kingdom? There's a big difference between having an actual position in the kingdom of grace and recognizing and living according to that actual position in the kingdom. Let me say that again. There is a big difference between having an actual position in the kingdom of Christ and recognizing and living according to that actual position in the kingdom of Christ. You say, okay, Pastor, I'm still confused about this. Because what do you mean exactly? How does this work out practically in my life, in how I sin? Well, let me see if I can illustrate it. I, I read an example this week from one of my dead friends who wrote about slavery in America. He said, in the United States of America some 155 years ago, the then President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. We all know what that is. If we know our history, it was the declaration that those who had lived under the rule of slavery were in a moment of time declared to be free. They were declared outside of anything they did, to be free. They were innocent and free from their current slave masters. So, think about it. By and through the means of another one, not themselves, they had been delivered from the rule of one powerful master over them, and been placed into the rule of another more powerful master by the gift of grace known as freedom. The master of slavery had been abolished. We would even say, in the words, if we wanted to put it in biblical terminology, like Paul says, they died to slavery's power over them by the declaration of one man who rewrote the law and thereby their lives. So all slaves, it didn't matter if they were young or old, they were now free. 
But what happened? Some of the slaves, some of the slaves in practical outworkings, those who had actually been slaves for a long time, found it hard, found it very difficult to actually understand their new position under freedom. They found that hard, very difficult to understand what it meant to no longer be under a slave master, to now be free. They heard what the declaration said. They heard the news that they had been declared free. But many times, probably in the life of many slaves, thousands of times, in their lives after being set free, when they would see their old master, when they'd be walking in town and their old master was walking in town and they saw their old slave master, they would begin to act like slaves again in his presence or her presence. Wondering possibly if something might happen to them if they didn't. They'd be hauled off into some stockade or get beat with whips. Maybe even they thought that life might be better the old way much happier if they just went went along with him. They were completely and actually free. The law had been changed. Their old master was no longer ruler over them. They were dead to the old rule. Their position now was an actual and present, new, completely different position in the kingdom. They sometimes chose not to live trusting in it. I submit to you that it's the same with us as Christians. We can, and we unfortunately do, choose to sin experientially. We choose to sin. Even though we're no longer slaves of it in a Divine legal sense. It no longer has master over us. It no longer calls the shots. It no longer holds sway over us. It no longer, by the fear of death, has power over us. We choose, even though we're not slaves to it, to experientially go with it. As Christians, we are living in a new country. We've been removed from the old country of sin doesn't rule us. We're in a country ruled by the superabounding power of grace. But guess what happens? In the country of sin, Satan still rules. He rules the day. And he loves to shout over the fence at us. And when we sin... It's absolute foolishness. It's ridiculous. It's folly, the Bible says. So why would we listen to the old master? Why would we listen to the old ruler when he has no power over us anymore? In fact, the emphasis... The emphasis that the Apostle Paul is making here is... In the question that he asks in verse 2, is that for those who are truly under the power of grace, it's impossible to go on continually living in a country that you're not a citizen of. It's impossible. You can't do it. 
You cannot do it. You say, is that really true? Let me, let me show you this in another passage. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Of course, we understand 1 John is written to believers. This is a book about Christian living. Certainly people can get saved through reading 1 John, but the primary purpose is that John is writing to those who who say they believe. This is what Christian life is. This is what it's like to live the Christian life out. And in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, notice what it says. These These are sometimes hard words for us to hear and confusing. No one who is born of God practices sin. And John's saying to you, you have faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who truly has faith in Jesus Christ doesn't practice sin. That's not the, the essence of their life. So, I, if your life is a, the life of continual habitual practice of sin with no thought about it, you have to question, do I even know Christ? No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him. You have Christ living in you. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You have been empowered by God to not practice sin. And notice the next phrase. He cannot sin. That doesn't mean he doesn't do acts of sin. That means he cannot actually live in that country continuously. It's impossible. Why? Because he's born of God. No longer a citizen of that kingdom. That's why he says in verse 10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, he says it from the opposite way, anyone who doesn't practice righteousness is not of God. Nor the one who does not love his brother. See, now he's working out in a practical way. An act of righteousness. Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The whole idea of the law coming to bear upon your life in that very area. Because love covers it all. Love covers every aspect. Love deals with everything. So if you say, I love God, I'm walking with Jesus, and yet you don't exercise that way, The question is, do you really know Jesus? Because to continually live in that way is an impossibility for someone who truly is in the kingdom of grace. This is what he's saying. We know that the Scriptures teach us that our deliverance is an actual fact. It's an actual fact. It's a fact by means of faith in Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul says. Notice at the end of 1 John 3, the end, the second part of verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose. Why did Jesus come? Why did He appear? Why did, was He even part of the process? He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works, the power of the one under whom we were in the kingdom. So how ridiculous is it 
for us who are under Jesus Christ, under grace, to now live according to the power or under the rule of one who has no rule over us. It is impossible. Christ would never allow that. But because of our old practices, because of old influences, because we forget and willfully ignore our new position in Christ, and we listen to sin, we sin. We are free from the power of sin. And our task now is to resist. To resist. Because we've been equipped to resist. You know what James chapter 4, verse 7 says? Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. It doesn't say bark at the devil. doesn't say quote verses to the devil. doesn't say preach to the devil. doesn't do any of that. He says resist. He's calling over the fence. Hey, come to my country. Resist. Don't go there. Believe God. Don't listen to the calls from your own tempted flesh. Don't listen to those. Don't listen to the old country. Resist it. Walk. By what? Faith. Walk by faith. Faith in what? Faith in what God has said. Faith in what your new king has said. Faith in what's in the new kingdom. Walk by faith in what God has said and all temptation will flee. You see, here's the answer that I said we may not like. The reason that you and I Sin by way of act now, after we know Jesus Christ, even though we have died to sin, is because we aren't believing that we're actually free. We're not believing. We have to believe it, folks. We have to believe it. God has said it. God has declared it. For us to not believe it is to say to God what you say cannot be actually true. We have to believe it. We have to walk by faith. That's what faith is. Belief, what God says. We say, oh, I believe Jesus. I believe He's securing me for glory. We've never seen Him. We've never seen God. Like we said in John 14, Jesus saying to the disciples, look, you believe in God, you don't see Him. Believe in me even though you're not going to see me. We have to believe it. We have to walk by faith. We have to believe that we have been delivered from the power of sin. Therefore, why would we live in it? Staggeringly simple answer, isn't it? I know we were hoping for something more profound, something that would have nothing to do with me. Something outside of me that would tell me, oh, this is why, and and that will get fixed in time. And yet it's already been fixed. We just need to appropriate it. The reason we sin now by way of act is because in that moment of sinfulness, we are not living by faith. We are simply not trusting what God has said about us, about Jesus Christ, about Himself, His promises to us. We are 
actually not believing that we have died to sin. And so we choose to return to its rules. We choose to to go back to the old country and live according to it. God declared that we're free. We have to believe it. Believe it. If we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. You cannot be in Adam and in Christ at the same time as the as the principal kingdom ruler. It, 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 it does not work. If you are in Adam, you are dead. You are facing an eternal destruction if you're still in Adam. You must be in Christ. We are... If we're in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer under the rule and power of sin. We are in Christ. We are now under the reign and the superabounding power of grace. Listen, there's something more powerful than sin and its temptations. There's something vastly more powerful. It's called grace. Grace superpower. It's the superpower that we've been given by God to do what is right, to do and follow what is commanded of us. And where sin has a potential to happen, where sin actually happens, grace is more powerful. Grace is more powerful. You're not stuck there. You're not stuck there. Get back on the train. Get back on the plane and go back to the country that rules you. Get out of the country that you were delivered from. Walk by faith. When you believed in Jesus Christ, you died to the rule of sin. You are dead to it right now. Therefore, it is impossible for you to actually fulfill in any kind of practical way as someone who truly knows Jesus Christ the question of verse 1. It is impossible for you to go on continually living in sin in hopes that you might feel grace more. The only way to understand and know grace more is to walk by faith, not live in sin. Impossible. You cannot go on habitually without any thought of doing right. Go on sinning and claim Christ. When you sin, when I sin, it's simply because we have not chosen to follow our new master. We've chosen to follow the old master. We have forgotten whose we are right now. See, we're under the reign of grace. We're under the rule of grace. New country. You've been equipped in that new country to not sin, to not go back, to not live according to the tauntings of your flesh. But walk by faith. Believe what God says. Trust God and refuse to follow the old master. He doesn't rule you. It doesn't matter what threats he gives. 
Oh, but if I go that way, so-and-so is going to stomp on me. So-and-so is going to make fun of me. So-and-so is going to reject me. Listen, don't trust those things. Trust what God says. Oh, but if I go that way, it's going to be financial ruin for my life. Don't trust that. Trust what God says. Oh, if I do that, my whole family is going to implode and it's going to blow apart. Don't trust that. Trust what God says. Those are all shoutings from the old king. Oh, sure, Adam, surely God didn't mean that if you ate that, you would die. I mean, he just doesn't want you to be like him. Adam trusted that. And he should have just trusted what God said. That's what happens to us. So how did this death to sin happen? How did it happen? You know the answer. Or at least you ought to know the answer. It comes to us beginning in verse 3 through verse 11. And and I'm just going to introduce it by one phrase. And then we'll be done. We'll have our time around the communion table. But do you notice what Paul says, verse 3? Or do you not know? There's something about the Christian faith that when God saves you, there, there, there ought to be a, common, a, spiritual, a spiritual common sense that goes with it. In other words, justification implies a whole lot of common sense realities for your Christian life. And Paul says this over and over and over and over again in, in the New Testament. Don't you know this about yourself? Don't you know this to be true about you as a Christian? Don't you know this? And here he says, don't you know that this has happened to, to you? And because that, this has happened and this has happened and this has happened to you. Don't you know that? You see, there's a common sense that comes with faith in Jesus Christ about spiritual things. You ought to know some things as you think through and understand justification. That if justification is exactly what God has said it is, and it is true because it's God who said it and declared it, then these things are common sense. Go on living in sin? Are you kidding? An unchanged Christian? How does that happen? How does someone who claims Christ never get changed by the Word of God? If the Holy Spirit enters into you, how does that not change you? Foolish. Foolish thinking. And so Paul wants to set this right so that we never are confused again about these things. So how does this then happen? We'll get to that next time. And it will fall like dominoes, hopefully. It's like pushing the one and everything follows in its place. And you go, of course. Of course. Is it any wonder that Paul can get down to verse 12 and says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body? In other words, because all of this is true about your unity with Jesus Christ through justification, then, then don't allow that. Don't allow that. You've been equipped to not allow that. get to that next time. This is rich, rich truth. 
rich, rich truth. I hope, I hope it's helpful. I hope it's not confusing. I hope these things are opening your breathing passages to these spiritual truths as you take a deep breath into it. Well, we want to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table this morning. And these are always sobering times for us as we think about our own sin, as we think about the challenge of what we even talked about this morning and the reality that Christ even died for every sin that we've ever committed or will ever commit. The guilt of those things has been gone. The mitigated consequences of sin even today, God is gracious in those ways, but the guilt of it is gone. The eternal guilt before God has been taken care of in Christ, and we want to celebrate what He has accomplished on our behalf through the communion table. Would you bow in prayer with me? Father, we thank You. We thank You for understanding, at least hopefully in a, in a better way, the ridiculous reality of even thinking that we could go on sinning and enjoy grace. We already live in it. Your Word tells us that we stand in it. We've, we've, we've had our invitation. We've had the door open to us into this grace in which we stand. How foolish it is to think that we can just go on sinning. What a blaspheme it is to Your holiness and truth. Thank You for the forgiveness that You give us, that You are indeed faithful and just to forgive us even when we sin, even now. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Abundant, superabounding grace. Thank You for giving us, through the power of Your Spirit, the superpower of overcoming those things. Help us to, to exercise that. Help us to live according to this understanding and knowledge so that we might not easily follow after the tauntings of the flesh. The evil one would love for us to do that so that your name is blasphemed, so that others would go, oh yeah, whatever. Christians, they never obey. They never do what's right. Lord, help us not be hypocrites like that. Help us to do what you've asked for the sake of your glory, not our honor, to highlight Jesus Christ so that others might know life in his name. What a blessing these things are. Prepare our hearts now as we think about our time around the communion table. In Jesus' name, amen.